0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. This week we'll be talking to Paige Harden, who's the author of a book that suggests it's time for the left to lose its fear of genetics. Maureen is the title of an exhibition from Gita Hammond featuring the photographer's images of her grandmother, for whom she's a carer. And Jennifer Walsh is here later on to talk about the post-human world of Kimberly Biscuits in her latest Things Know Things. But we begin this time with the question of what your genes tell you about how much money you're likely to earn and the very contested answer. Professor Paige Harden is a behavioural geneticist and the author of The Genetic Lottery, a cat among the pigeons' book on what our genes might tell us to expect from our lives, not just in illness and disease, but in education, earning power and happiness. This, of course, is the kind of territory stalked by exclusionary theories of genetics used to justify everything from discrimination to racism, sterilisation and genocide. But Harden's twist is that new information rather than supporting the status quo might actually be the key to tackling inequality. She talked to File about developments like GWAS, Genome-Wide Genetic Association Studies, about luck and about winning genetics back from the right.
1: I wrote the book trying to have a conversation with not just other scientists, this book originally started out as a paper, actually. I thought I would write, a, you know, maybe 10,000-word paper for a scientific journal. And at the same time, I, you know, am on Twitter and I interact with people who aren't scientists. And I progressively realized that so many of the things I was writing about in that very technical context were applicable to conversations that were happening beyond the walls of the academy. And so... The book is both academic in the sense that it's published with an academic press and it has footnotes and it was fact-checked and it's scholarly. But I was trying to speak to people who you know, might not have encountered any of the scientific content since college or even high school.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I guess I'm one of those people. So I felt um, I'm starting on on an uphill ride. For a lot of people, non-scientists, we, we'd have an idea that there there are things that are heritable that come to us through our genes. But we might view that process somewhat simplistically. And you know, I'm I'm not talking for the moment about the effects of of the environment, but we probably get caught up in the idea that there's a gene for something.
1: That view of genetics as a gene for something is is very much a product of how genetics and biology is taught in school. You know, if you took genetics or had any exposure to genetics in high school and secondary school, for instance, you probably learned about the gene for having blue eyes or Mendel's pea plants, the gene for having smooth versus wrinkly peas. And of course, the popular media also uses that phrase, um, you know, the gene for depression or the gene for being gay. Um, and, And so to talk about this topic is it really is an uphill battle, not just for the reader, but also for the author to think about, well, what preconceptions are there out there and then how can i strip those away and then rebuild them up with a with a more sophisticated knowledge with anything that i would study as a psychologist when we're talking about personality or mental disorders addiction intelligence behavior there is almost never a gene for anything. There's lots of genes that combine in ways that we don't understand in interaction with the environment that changes our probability of developing in this direction versus this direction. And describing those kinds of Um, multiplicity of causes, none of which is deterministic, is really challenging.
0: One of the the terms that's been invented since I was in uh, secondary school is the polygenic index. And this is the thing that helps spread out the cause of anything genetically, in the sense that that's how we get away from the idea of the gene for.
1: Yeah. So a polygenic index. So poly just means many. So a polygenic is many genes added up into a single score, into a single number. The way that's constructed is by taking a really large group of people. Let's say you have a million people and you've measured something in all of them. And that something could be height. It could be the number of years they've spent in school. It could be how depressed are they. And that outcome, which we call a phenotype, is then correlated with genetic differences between people that we've measured. So we might measure 8 million genetic differences. Each one of those is correlated with that outcome, that phenotype we've measured. And so we end up with a list of very small correlations. Those correlations can then be applied in a new group of people. And so I go to you and I say, okay, now I've measured your genome. I'm going to add up all of the height associated with being taller genetic variants that you have. And I'm going to add all of that information up into a single number, and that's going to be your polygenic score for height. So it's basically my best guess as a researcher, based just on information that I've measured from your DNA, about your likelihood of being taller versus shorter. And those guesses for height are actually pretty decent. For something like education or intelligence, the polygenic scores are not perfectly predictive of someone's phenotype, not by any stretch of the means, but they are as strongly correlated with some of the outcomes we care about as some of the more traditional social science variables. So for instance, a polygenic score for educational attainment in white people from high-income countries is as strongly correlated with their rates of going to college or of graduating from college as knowing something like their family income. So that's a, you know, a, a decent correlation that makes it scientifically interesting.
0: You use a rather elaborate metaphor in the book to, to describe how this might work in the world. And you talk about the world of restaurants, which is something, <laughs> something that I could easily grab here. But it's very interesting because what it takes into account, this, this metaphor of restaurants, is what use the prediction might be put to. So t- tell us about that, that picture of the world of restaurants as, as a poly-restaurant index, yeah. a polygenic index.
1: So. So so the metaphor is this. So imagine that you are, you know, you are an alien and you've come down and you're trying to understand why people go to some restaurants more than they go to others. And so you go to something like Yelp, which is, you know, a ratings aggregator and, and people rate how good restaurants are. And you say, okay, well, that's a really crude measure of how good restaurants are, but we'll go with it. And then you go to each restaurant and you say, okay, I'm going to come up with a list of every ingredient that's involved in every single one of their recipes. And I'm just going to correlate those ingredients with restaurants Yelp ratings. On the one hand, that's a really strange thing to do, right? Like do restaurants use more cilantro have higher Yelp ratings? Like it's, it's a really crude approach. It doesn't tell you how those ingredients are combined. It doesn't tell you anything about the environments, the atmosphere, the ambiance of a restaurant. But that's exactly what a GWAS is doing. It's saying, okay, well, people have different genetic ingredients in their genomic cookbooks. Which one of these ingredients are correlated with being taller or being heavier or being more depressed or going further in school? So on the one hand, the results of a kind of like restaurant association analysis isn't going to tell you how to cook. Any more than a, the results of a GWAS can tell you, well, how do you build a person that's extroverted? On the other hand, it's sort of interesting and fascinating that it works at all, that we do get some information, that we can predict to some degree, which people are more likely to graduate from college, which is a a pretty important... It's a great sort
0: of uh, I suppose poems about the effects of environment and and genes is related to red hair, which is obviously very interesting for people in in (laughs) Ireland.
1: Yeah, so this is a... I'm glad that you call it a poem. It is kind of a poetic example. So this is a thought experiment from the sociologist Sandy Jinks who was writing in the 70s. And he said, you know, imagine a world where redheads were discriminated against and their teachers hated them and they weren't allowed to go to school, right? And then you did a genetic study and you saw, are there genetic effects on illiteracy? Well, you would find them, right? Because genes affect the color of your hair and the color of your hair evokes a social response and the social response structures your environmental opportunities and that leads to whether or not you can read, But that isn't what most people would think of as a quote-unquote genetic effect, right? Because it's operating through this social process. You know, I think that's a really important point for two reasons. Three reasons, actually. The first is, you know, it's a great example of why we should be wary of using polygenic scores for personalized education or decisions about individuals. Because right now we don't know how much they're picking up on these type of red-headed effects, which is genes are coding for some aspect of someone's physical appearance that's, that's being responded to with bias and discrimination. The second is it, it, it undermines genetic determinism. Well, yes, genes might cause illiteracy. How would we fix that? Well, it wouldn't be by giving everyone, like, black hair genes. It would be by... Changing this, how the social environment responds to people, right? So it's an environmental intervention that addresses this genetic disparity. And the third thing, and I think this is actually the most radical, which is well, if we see that redheaded children are discriminated against, they're pushed out of society, and that calls out for some sort of redress for that inequality, why should some aspect of someone's psychology be any different? right? Like if a child struggles with working memory or dyslexia, is them being excluded from the economy, pushed out of the job market, living a life of economic precarity, is that any fairer than redheaded children not being allowed to go to school? I don't think it is. Um, so I think the, 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 one of the poetics aspects of Jinx's example is it really highlights how morally arbitrary all of our luck in life is. So a GWAS might be picking up, this is that genome-wide association study that kind of looking for patterns in people's DNA and how they're correlated with outcomes. It might be that a certain gene is associated with going further in school because that gene codes for something related to how good is your memory, right? And then children with better memory go further in school. But we also see that it's things like genes that make it so that you go through puberty earlier, And we know that girls who go through puberty earlier are responded to differently, and they're more likely to to struggle in school. So the algorithm is picking up on all sorts of processes, some of which we might think of as fair or, you know, things that we don't mind operating, but also some things that might be more indicative of social bias and discrimination. That's why I suggest in my book that we shouldn't be using genetics to classify people. We should be using them as a tool to understand the environment, which environments are working most effectively.
0: Traditionally, if if people want to make the point that you're making, they're often making it from, uh, or have historically been making it, and maybe even contemporarily been making it from a eugenicist point of view, through a, uh, a kind of lens that sees... Uh, certain traits as desirable and certain traits then as uh, necessarily uh, necessary to be eradicated. And even though that's a, the sort of historical story of eugenics, it's not one that we've escaped from.
1: I think a lot of the fear and a lot of the misinformation around genetics has really rested on this idea that if if there's genetic causes of human behavior, then the only way to intervene... To help people will be to mess with their genes in some way, uh, which of course is a really abhorrent prospect. We saw that in the 20th century, the way in the US and the UK and Europe people use the idea of genetics to justify these eugenic sterilization programs, um, uh, really messing with people's reproductive autonomy. Even thinking about, you know, Mendelian inheritance, you know, there was a time where Stalin rounded up geneticists and, you know, sent them to Siberia because it was considered really threatening to class struggle and class progress. So this is an old idea that has continued in diluted form in the American left. The idea that equality means sameness and that difference is a threat to social equality. At the same time, we've had other, I think, liberatory movements that have really embraced idea of difference in their claims for equality. If we look at the neurodiversity movement around people with autism spectrum disorders, if we think about the ways that um, biological roles in gender identity and sexual orientation have played a role in um, the gay rights movement and the transgender rights movement. Um, So I think there's kind of this tension in the left right now. One, One strand has really thought of difference and Biological difference in particular is a threat to egalitarian ideals, whereas you have this other narrative that's kind of pushing through, and I I think I'm very much in this camp that says equality is not about um, ignoring difference. It is about acknowledging and responding to difference in a way that equalizes people's ability to participate in a pluralistic society.
0: In a way, your book is about genetics, but it, its other theme is the political nature of science, and even what is accepted as the as the results of a of a, a scientific discussion uh, might be determined by uh, where you stood on the political spectrum, and and that's something that you're 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 sort of charting again and again in the book.
1: I mean, we've seen so many examples of this with the the coronavirus pandemic, of the ways in which science and the results of science can be politicized the way that knowledge becomes tribal. Um, Even our definitions of what science is, is in some way socially constructed. On the one hand, I think we need to recognize that scientists are people. So we are always people who have motivations. We are always political actors, whether we want to be or not. At the same time, I feel like we have a particular responsibility to try to separate out what are our empirical observations of the world, what is true, from our discussions of what our values, of what ought to be, what are our moral responsibilities. Um, I think it's really dangerous when people try to have moral debates on empirical grounds. Um, And so that's one of the big projects in my book is try to say, okay, let's talk about what is, let's talk about what ought to be, and then let's talk about how these two things can fit together. There's a kind of tricky line here where I'm saying we need to take genetics seriously as a source of individual differences, as a source of how people's lives go differently, But our response to observing those differences isn't to throw up our hands and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. We're abdicating our responsibility. It's to use that information to figure out how can we most effectively structure society and intervene environmentally so that people have the most optimum equal life chances. It's interesting to look back historically because we see a time in the early 20th century where there wasn't this kind of um, lockstep alliance between people who, you know, believed in human inferiority and superiority and kind of an endorsement of genetics. There was a lot more kind of ideological sort of flux and I think now, it's particularly in the U.S., we're also again in a time of ideological and political flux. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that now is when we are reimagining things and trying to think about, well, what, what forms of science have we given away too much to, um, you know, to a really pernicious right wing that we should really reclaim as part of our social justice movements?
0: Catherine Page Hardin there and the genetic lottery Why DNA Matters for Social Equality is out now from Princeton University Press. Now, Gita Hammond is an Irish-Icelandic visual artist and photographer based in Dublin. Back in 2005, she spent time documenting the domestic life of her Icelandic grandmother using natural light portraits to capture her images. On the Irish side of Hammond's family, her grandmother, Maureen, is 91 years old Lives in Dublin. Maureen has dementia, and during the last year and a half, Geeta has been photographing her and her surroundings, documenting Maureen and her world. Culturefile's Louise Williams went to visit Geeta for a preview of her new exhibition, and check out Twitter at CulturefilePod for photographs.
2: She, she recognised her coat in, in, in the picture, but not herself. She's like, oh. That's me, is it? Oh, it's lovely.
3: <laughs> you have a little pile of the photographs in front of us here on the table. Do you want to, should we start going through them yeah, and, and yeah. just get give me a picture? I'll try and, we'll try and capture between us yeah. what we're looking at. Yes. Yeah.
2: So it starts off with a picture um, of, of her front garden with her beloved roses in her front door. So
3: three pink roses. They look very well kind of cared for.
2: Yeah, they'd, they'd be her, her pride and joy. And, and then the next picture is her opening the door, greeting me. And she still remembers me and my face, but not my name um, or who I am. Yet, you know, Like a welcoming, honest person that's you know trustworthy, and... Um, She's always smiled when she sees me. And she has a kind of, um, it's not a full smile on her face at the front door here. Yeah.
3: So she's wearing a, a kind of a house coat and a brown jumper. She's small. She's got kind of um, shortish grey white hair. Tell me about her house. I can just see a, another light, another window to the back behind her
2: down the hall. Well, it, it's how she's been in for. Probably since uh, the 40s, I'd say. It's in Goatstown. Um, and it hasn't changed at all since she's been living there. Uh, she has um, three adult kids and they've all moved out. And she's the only one there still. And her husband died as well. So she's been on her own there since the 90s.
3: Would you remember having been there as a kid as well?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I would have spent my, my summers summers with her. Um, my mum was from Iceland. So I'd, I'd spend my summers in Ireland with her and my dad. So I spent all my summers living there and um, spending time with her.
3: So it's a second home almost for you. A very familiar
2: place. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Before she got sick, she would have been a very proud housewife and um, like loved, you know, having having guests over for tea and scones and cake and and this whole project was was inspired by my other project I I did about my Icelandic grandmother about 15 years ago. It was a similar project um taken in Iceland of, of my grandmother's house and and herself. And I wanted to kind of tie in my two grandmothers. So having having my Irish grandmother and my Icelandic grandmother and uh I combined them both. Mm. Um a part of these photographs are are or interior shots of, of the house like small detailed shots and then portraits of her so a lot of the photographs are taken kind of in a, at, a, at a low angle looking up up at things at items and at the shelves and the different objects on the shelves um, and i purposely like uh, photograph them at, at a low angle i wanted the viewer to see that i'm i'm the granddaughter kind of looking up at her in a kind of like i'm i'm younger than her and i'm smaller and i'm looking up and and again in a kind of um kind of a proud way you know, it's looking at her house in a proud way. It's not looking down on anything. A lot of them are, yeah. Gosh, it's so still, that this photo that you just turned over. So it's her side of the bed with her clock, and uh, there's like a panic button in case something happens. The composition I like, it's quite still, and it's straight, and again, the soft light. And here's, here's her in front of her her apple tree that she loves. Um, they come into fruit every every August, and there's there's an abundance of lovely sweet apples. Um, I, I look forward to it every year. This, this photo of her looks, I think she she looks just really kind of um, but proud, but happy, you know, in her in her place and in her garden and in her like it's her space, you know. Um, and she was a very keen gardener.
3: Is she still able to garden? No,
2: no. But she sometimes does dig a little bit and weed in the summertime, but very rarely. These photos were taken um, over, over a year period from from the beginning of lockdown almost. Um, I look after my grandmother about two mornings a week. I, I, every so often I take pictures of her and, and she asked me a couple of times like why I was taking the pictures and why, why I wanted to take them. I showed her um, a, li- a little video I did of my Icelandic grandmother's project and told her that I made a book for, for her family and for future generations about those pictures and, and it was important for for future generations to see photos of of older people and and people in their family in their past yeah she was like okay I understand yeah but but I had to keep every every time I took them I had to keep explaining it and she didn't mind being photographed she was very she trusted me and um, she looked at me and she was she was happy to be photographed
3: amazing yeah
2: there's a photo um, I love about her she looks really regal and proud she's not quite trusting but still you know she lets me in you know uh, and there's a slight smile i just love the light in it and the palette and the softness
3: she's wearing a kind of a pinkish pinky gray cardigan and everything is the the light is very subdued in, in the photo it's beautiful mm. yeah. have you kind of navigated COVID with your grandmother, you know, not being well and you being
2: a carer, how has COVID affected that relationship? I, I share the caring duties with, with with my dad and my uncle and, and there's a professional carer that comes in every day as well. Like it started maybe about like four years ago and during COVID especially, like it was a kind of an anchor in my week. Like it helped my sanity as well and, and she didn't really know about COVID much so it was, so it was a relief to go there and not not have to talk about COVID or going into her world and being with her was was like a treasure and it was um, I spent time with her so that was the important aspect of it. Precious time. Yeah, the precious time I have with her. Yeah. Will your grandmother go? Do you think? And she won't go to the opening because I think she would be completely overwhelmed with the amount of people and the just the noise. She hasn't been to town since COVID. I think. Um... So I'm, I'm going to bring her and her other care to, to have a look at it.
0: Peter Hammond there and the reporter was Louise Williams. That exhibition, Maureen, is at the Irish Georgian Society on South William Street in Dublin until March 2nd. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, Jennifer Walsh with some uncanny, biscuity goodness in which our correspondent tries to understand the post-human world via her own relationship with some 1980s advertising collateral. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things.
4: Child who grew up in Ireland in the 1980s knows the names of the entities that make up the Holy Trinity Kimberly, Mikado, and Coconut Cream. My mother recently found and threw out a Kimberly promotional toy I'd had as a child back in the early 1980s. It was a rubber head. Supposedly the face of Kimberly, an American cowboy with a moustache so thick and unruly it had joined forces with his eyebrows. Kimberly had holes in the back of his face so that you could stick your fingers in and make his mouth move. I spent a lot of time as a small child puppeting Kimberly the cowboy, doing shoddy approximations of his howdy partners American accent. What exactly was I talking to when I talked to Kimberly? The toy? The biscuit? Jacobs? Some triangulation of all three? It was clear to me the experience was different than regular toys. Kimberly the Cowboy was a pretty rubbish toy made from cheap, itchy foam, but playing with Kimberly the Cowboy was somehow closer to eating an actual Kimberly the Biscuit than playing with other toys. One of the most successful ad campaigns of the first year of the pandemic also involved people talking to a biscuit. Except this time, the biscuit was powered by AI rather than a child's hand. The Moon Pie is an American biscuit popular in the South made by Chattanooga Bakery Incorporated. If you've never seen one, it's almost identical to a wagon wheel. In May 2020, MoonPie launched the MoonPie Moonmate, available to anyone who had an Alexa. The MoonPie Moonmate was a virtual roommate people could speak to through their Alexa. The Moonmate's personality was designed to be funny and slightly insulting, making wisecracks about your hair or taste in music. And people did indeed speak to the moonpie moonmate. Stuck at home in lockdown, alternating between overwhelming stress and debilitating boredom, people spent huge amounts of time interacting with the moonmate. And again, I wonder what were people talking to when they talked to the moonpie moonmate? The Alexa? The Biscuit? The Chattanooga Bakery? the advertising company who designed the campaign the AI the absurdity of the pandemic and what exactly did they talk about and are they still talking to it now
0: Jennifer Walsh bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more tasty treats next week. Meanwhile, and to never miss a biscuit, you can subscribe to the podcast via the Lyric Site or your favourite podcast platform. Till next week. Bye now.